Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. Man, it's the last episode of Season 2. Um, and I just, I just can't even believe that. Uh, but thank you for tuning back in with us. We are here with PhD student Alexander Firth and Dr. John Brooks, who's a research microbiologist with the USDA Agricultural Research Service. And we are wrapping up the last episode in a series with Dr. Brooks that where we've covered soil biology, antimicrobial resistance, and now we're going to connect those topics to some research priorities moving forward and just talk about some things that really everyone needs to know about these topics. Enjoy. So I'm really, I'm really glad that you made, you know, just the strong connection between environmental health and human health. Um, Because of course, with us all working in areas of sustainability and food and water security, um, it's just really, you know, kind of one of the fundamental things that we, we in our generation need to be aware of um, and, and need to work toward. So to that end, um, I want to switch gears a little bit back toward sustainability and kind of how the antimicrobial resistance and our earlier topic of, of soil biology uh, merge on, on agricultural landscapes. Um, you know, you've done past research with biosolids, uh, but you, we started our first episode conversation about talking, talking more about soil biology. And, and you noted that soil microbes produce antibiotics. That's what they do. So with the unit you work in uh, at the USDA ARS, which is a fantastic unit, what do you see as a bit of a vision for your top sustainability issues moving forward? So right now, what we're, what we're trying to do um, with our particular project that we have that, that funds our unit um, is to close the yield gap. And so we know in Mississippi and broader, uh, more broad in the southeastern area, we know that this area is, is ripe for um, basically being able to grow pretty much anything we want. We have a warm climate, a hot climate. Uh, we have rain, uh, water uh, fairly readily available. Um, there are times when it comes at, at times that we don't want it. Um, and then we don't have as much of it when we do need it, but uh, we have an environment that can certainly sustain a, a, a fairly healthy growth. However, if you look at places like in California and you look at cotton growth in California and you relate that to Mississippi, the, the cotton growth in, in California, are they're beating us by, by quite a few percentage points. Uh, in overall production. And, and the question is, well, why is that? We've got, California doesn't have any water. Um, we have water. Uh, so why, um, why is it that California can outproduce us? And so that's what we're trying to do with uh, our unit here is closing that yield gap. Um, there, there's a maximum potential and 
with any agricultural system and we're not achieving that maximum potential. Um, and, and, and so the idea is, well, how do we do that? And one way, as I said earlier, is, is we think cover crop is, is a way to do that. Uh, as many people here at Mississippi State University also uh, consider that, that one of the ways to do that. Um, precision agriculture is a way to do that using, whether that's using drones, uh, whether that's using um, GPS guided uh, fertilizer applications, um, these sorts of things. Precision agriculture is a tool that we promote as a means to help close not only the sustainability from an environmental standpoint, but the economic sustainability from the farmer standpoint, because that's an equal, equally important part of sustainability is if the farmer doesn't make money off of whatever they're doing, then why are they doing it? So we have to be able to find ways to help sustain our farmers uh, and, and particularly some of our, our smaller farmers. Uh, we have to find ways to, to help them. And our unit thinks that um, uh, GPS guided systems uh, are the way to, to get them there. Um, because you, maybe you can reduce your, your costs on, on fertilizer. You can deliver uh, treatments where you need to deliver them rather than doing this broad-based uh, treatment over a hundred acres. Maybe you only need to treat uh, two acres out of that hundred. And so now you've, you've saved yourself 98% of, of the materials that you were using. Um, and now you, now you get away with that. that. That's putting money back into your pocket. And so that, that can be done through these GPS guided systems. Like I said, whether that is drone based or whether that's um, you know, tractor based systems. But that's kind of the vision that we have at this point is, is moving forward with that, finding ways to, our, our, our project is basically finding ways to address every single aspect of the cycle, of the, continuum. And in that case, where I address the biology side, we have people that are addressing the nutrient side. We have other people that are addressing the agronomy side. We have other people that are addressing the drone side, the, the GPS guided side. And then we have other people addressing gaseous emissions, uh, soil structure, soil uh, physical structure. So we're, we're looking at it from a holistic uh, standpoint and, and trying to attack it from every single uh, science uh, that we, we possibly can. So thinking about all the research that your unit is doing um, and how rapidly change, how rapidly agricultural systems are seemingly changing as they're trying different technologies, you know, what would you see on the horizon in terms of environmental monitoring as it relates hmm. to antimicrobial resistance, but some of these other sustainable uh, sustainability concerns, particularly carbon. Yeah, okay, so I'll start with the uh, antimicrobial resistance uh, part of it, because that, that is probably a little bit easier to answer uh, at this point, because if I look into my crystal ball, um, it, you can already see where it's heading. Um, so one of the things that I think we're going to see is just the same way that we monitor water for E. coli or water for fecal coliforms, uh, we 
are probably headed in that same direction in the next 10 to 15 years, maybe sooner, where we're going to be looking at antimicrobial resistant bacteria uh, in these agro ecosystems. Um, and we may start off small at this point where we're just focused on looking at these particular, let's say we're looking for antimicrobial resistant salmonella only in poultry, that sort of thing. So we may start there, but there will come a point based on what I'm seeing and the chatter from other countries, there will come a point where we're gonna be monitoring it in the environment. Um, we may monitor it in soil, which will probably be a nightmare. Uh, we'll be monitoring, we may monitor it in water, which will also be a nightmare. Um, basically because of the reasons I, I talked about earlier, the soil is where it all began. So if you're going to be monitoring for antimicrobial resistant bacteria in the soil, um, we have to have an understanding of a baseline, uh, meaning what was there before, what was the, the, the baseline level that we were dealing with before, um, before we grew cotton on that field, before we grew tomatoes on that field, before we uh, grew 25,000 chickens on that field, what was the baseline? And so that's, but unfortunately we're probably headed in that direction. And I think, I think in the next five to 15 years is, is probably an honest uh, uh, appraisal of where we're, where we're gonna go with that. Um, uh, I think other countries are really gonna push us to, to do that. And um, there's a lot of concerns with that that I could get into, um, I, I, but not, not for this podcast, but there's a lot of concerns associated with that uh, from everyone's, from a science perspective, from a farmer's perspective, from a government perspective, uh, there's a lot of concerns with, with how we actually will implement that uh, into it. Now, from a soil health perspective, I think, um, as you said, uh, specifically focusing in on carbon, you know, being able to monitor, and by monitor, I'm assuming that you're referring to government, um, monitoring or regulatory? Actually, I'm also thinking uh, about third party if carbon credit trading okay. becomes a open market. And if landowners have the capacity to monitor and sell carbon credits. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I certainly think that that is uh, where we can go. Uh, uh, with that process. Um, we've heard some anecdotal evidence and anecdotal stories from some farmers that I talked to in Arkansas, and they have already discussed these uh, carbon credit uh, systems with me and how they can capture more carbon in their soil. Uh, how can they improve that carbon so that way they can sell that credit to some other some other industry or some other uh, system, um, but yeah, I think that that is certainly a way we can go. Um, at this point, at least in the southeast, the biggest problem that we're going to have is be able to actually improve carbon in the soil to an appreciable 
amount. You might hear a story from a farmer that'll say, yeah, I improved my, my carbon by my, my organic carbon by 1%. Man, that's huge. Um, or a whole percentage point. Uh, and that's huge. But I, I think that's not going to be realistic for many farmers. I think in the Southeast, with our temperatures that we have, how hot it is that it never, it never really gets to a point where, where we're really cold. Um, and, and so because of that, you have bacteria and fungi that are growing all year round and they're constantly chewing up that carbon uh, and, and putting it out as carbon dioxide. And so um, that's gonna be difficult, a, ch a challenge for our farmers uh, in the Southeast uh, to be able to, to do, but I think that's certainly way, uh, where we can go. So alongside the environmental science work that you do, you also do risk analysis and that can get pretty complex. And some of the monitoring that we're discussing is along those lines of, of risk analysis, especially with the antimicrobial resistance surveillance that uh, in terms of monitoring um, landscapes for antimicrobial resistance in an effort to know beforehand if there is a potential risk. Is that the ultimate goal? Would that be the goal with the antimicrobial resistance mo monitoring? Yeah, so, so the goal would be if, if, you, if you have a particular system, um, let's say you're, uh, uh, you've got uh, a dairy herd on, on that particular field, the goal would be to understand what your antibiotic resistant E. coli level is typically at throughout different seasons of the year. And so you wanna have that number um, from a risk assessment standpoint, and I'm really only focusing in on a quantitative risk assessment standpoint, but we can get into a whole discussion of, of risk assessment. But you want to have that number to give yourself a baseline so that you know that whatever treatment you impose, maybe you change the feed of your herd, you change it from this grass to another grass. And in doing that, you have now changed the microbial population. And so you're no longer selecting for resistant E. coli. And so that plays directly into risk assessment because now we have some sort of management that you implemented. We have an understanding of the baseline and we saw what the effect was. So now we can run the numbers and tell you, okay, it was worth the money that you put in to make that change, it's worth it to ultimately get a better risk situation. And, and that's ultimately where, where a lot of this is going to head uh, from a risk assessment standpoint. Uh, at this point, the models are still very young. Uh, we really don't have solid models. We have management risk uh, models that we can use, but not risk assessment. Uh, models that we can use for antimicrobial resistance. So we're still we're still a little bit of ways away uh, on that, but uh, but that's where we're headed. Okay, so that that definitely helps clarify for me because it was it was unclear at first of that um, greater spatial monitoring on the landscape for antimicrobial resistance was at, was to serve as a benefit to the general public, or specific to the landowner. And it sounds like the landowners where this monitoring is happening could actually be one of the beneficiaries of that information. Yeah, yeah. So uh, 
the landowner would be a beneficiary in that th they would not have to um, have any sort of regulatory implications imposed on them. Uh, it, treat it the same way you would of, of E. coli in water. If you have some sort of management system that you're doing that is putting out 10 E. coli cells into the water, if you can do for the same money, if you can do another management system that only puts out one E. coli cell into that water, then from a risk standpoint, that's the better system to go for. And, and hopefully that would be your decision. And hopefully the risk analysis that we would conduct would tell you, hey, go for the system that only puts one E. coli cell out into the water because ultimately that helps public health. Ultimately, it keeps you off of, of you know, some sort of pollution lists, that, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with these <clears throat> topics that are really complex and they can be hot button issues sometimes, are there other things that you usually like to convey to the general public just to ensure that everyone is receiving the information in like a really transparent way so they understand um, how we're using science to accomplish all these really important sustainability issues and protecting environmental and human health? All right, so so one thing that's important that that uh, I like to convey to people is, is how complex these systems are because we have to get that information out there that we're dealing with very complicated systems. And as such, we as scientists, we don't understand everything about these systems. We only know the smallest, teensiest little fraction of these systems. As a microbiologist, I've been studying this now for 20 something years, and I don't know anything. I know nothing. And it's you have to convey that to people because while yes, I do have an understanding that's in a book and I have an understanding that, you know, I passed the test and this and that, I don't necessarily have the exact explanation for something that is occurring in your field or something that is occurring on a very complex system because there's a lot of aspects to that system that I don't understand that we don't understand. And, and so I try to make sure that anyone I'm talking to understands that, that we don't have every single answer because uh, of how complex these systems are. Um, but that being said, you, you do want to be able to utilize the tools that are available to you at, at that moment in time and utilize the information that has was captured by other scientists. Sometimes they captured that information 75 years ago. And so any good scientist is going to stand on the shoulders of the person who came before them and the person who came before them and the person that came before them. So don't ignore the old techniques. Don't ignore the old lessons that are out there because there's a lot of good information in those lessons at that moment in 1939 maybe they didn't understand what was exactly going on in that system but today because we have these molecular techniques now we do have an understanding of what's going on in that system so we can use that information to kind of propel ourselves forward and i think that's important 
to to get that information out there that uh you know that that uh we stand on everyone's shoulders uh, that came before us and 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 we move forward that way that's the only way we can move forward yeah lexi did you say you had a question i did um going back to risk assessment and you may not be able to answer this but let's just say a farmer is listening to this podcast and he gets really or she gets really interested in looking into risk on his, on their farm um what might he or she do to go about this process um just things that they could watch out for or look for uh to indicate that maybe they have some threat that's looming or not so well i think i think the first thing that they should do is of course reach out to your extension personnel uh because of course that person um will be able to put them into contact either with themselves or put them into contact with uh, someone else that has an expertise in that particular topic. So I think that's one way to do it. Um, of course, another way to do this is to research it uh, yourself. There's a lot of information out on the interwebs. Uh, a lot of journal articles are freely accessible. Don't go to a a blog that is not citing resources. Right, and your agency hosts all of your information on the internet, is that correct? Yeah, so so of course all of our information is is freely available and, and publications that, that are out there already, we have on our websites, uh, and these are ways that you can access that information. Uh, from a risk assessment, to get into your exact question, uh, Lexi, from a risk standpoint, it depends on what you're doing because the risk is really dependent upon whatever agro ecosystem we're talking about. So if we're talking about person A that's growing, uh, raising chickens, they have a very specific risk that's associated with their practice. And that risk could be, uh, let's just say salmonella or campylobacter, two foodborne bacteria uh, that cause uh, major uh, gastroenteritis issues throughout the country. Uh, those are the number one and two uh, uh, causes of bacterial gastroenteritis uh, throughout the country. And so your risk in that respect is going to be definitely tied to those two things, those two bacterium. And basically any management technique that you can do, maybe there's somebody who's going around um, advertising uh, some sort of special litter treatment that you're going to put onto your chicken litter in your house. And that chicken litter is going to be treated with, I don't know, with heat or something along those lines. And that's something that's going to mitigate and cut your risk down. And of course, you as the farmer, you don't want to be the cause of a nationwide outbreak. Because nowadays, chicken that's grown in Mississippi is not just for Mississippians, right? It's grown for everybody in the country and even parts of the chicken are sent overseas. So you don't wanna be the cause of that. There, the FDA had um, the Food Adulteration um, Act. I don't know if it was an act or if it was a law uh, that was enacted a few years ago. And this was a direct result of 
cantaloupe, I believe it was cantaloupe, but it might've just been fruit in general, um, that was contaminated with uh, listeria, monocytogenous. And uh, that company that was found at fault for this, of course, they, they got into a lot of trouble, a lot of legal issues, monetary issues, that sort of thing. And you don't wanna be that person holding that bag. Um, so those types of things, those are the, the, the kind of risk assessments that we wanna look at from a farm perspective is how can I reduce that? If you talk about antimicrobial resistance, that is very complex, very complicated because it's not as simple as farmer, the same farmer just pulling antibiotics from their chickens and no longer putting out antibiotics into their chicken uh, feed, which they don't do now anyway, but um, it's, it's no longer that simple. Uh, there's a complexity associated with this because there's antibiotic resistance genes in bacteria that are just regular Joe Schmo bacteria that are just in the gut of healthy chickens. And those resistance genes came from the environment. And your risk might be hidden to you because maybe you're feeding your chickens uh, feed uh, additive A and that feed, there's no reason for it to select for that good bacteria, but yet it does. And when it selects for that good bacteria that happens to have resistance genes in it, now you've increased your risk. So it's, that's a hidden risk that is very difficult and, and, and will, will be something that farmers are gonna probably have to deal with uh, over the next few decades. Um, but that's something that even, I have no idea how we're gonna deal with that at, at this point in time. Um, because how do, you how do you not select for certain bacteria that are just regular Joe Schmo bacteria? Uh, that, that's gonna be very difficult to do. Especially when those Joe Schmo bacteria are probably very key players in overall regulating and maintaining chicken health, for instance. So those kind of bacteria would have several beneficial roles in the gut alongside mm -hmm. this potential risk. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming. I know. <laughs> thanks for I know. I was like, so I also have antibiotic resistance genes in my gut is what I just yeah. concluded from that statement. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu. Thank you.